Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hi, everyone. I'm Felicia Angeja Viator. I'm a history professor, a pop culture scholar, a mom, an author, not necessarily in that order, and I have a new book out about Los Angeles rap, and I'm thrilled to share some of it with you all. Before I do that, I should note the obvious. We're not together inside Skylight, of course, the freshest bookstore in the West, for sure. I'm uh, not there, unfortunately, with all of you, but I'm recording this in my home in San Francisco. I live in the south side of the city in Ingleside, and I'm in the basement of my home. There are no windows down here, but there are rows and rows of records. There's a turntable. From my perspective here on the floor, I can also see a stack of books about my favorite tattoo artists. So while I don't have sun pouring in, I do have Prince. I see Bjork, Egyptian Lover, Durando. There's a book up there about Owen Jensen and a book by Paul Dobelman. And so I'm not alone, but in good company with all of these artists. Better than sunlight in some ways. Uh, I um, also have all of you here with me, so thank you so much for listening, and I hope you all are feeling well. I hope you're finding entertainment during this really unprecedented time, and hopefully you're finding some excellent books to read while you're sheltering at home. And maybe this will be one book you'll add to your stack. So, my book is called To Live and Defy in L.A., How Gangster Rap Changed America, The title is, if you can't tell, a bit of a hint that the book is a story about both Los Angeles society and music, specifically black youth music in the 1980s. And it's also an American story. It's a story about national culture during this era, the era of Ronald Reagan, the era of the 24-hour news cycle. This is the era of MTV and the PMRC. It's also the era of militarized policing and the National War on Drugs. My book considers all of these things to be essential to understanding the really complicated way that hip-hop becomes a commercial force by the early 1990s. I tell in this book a multi-layered story about why hip-hop, which is of course this music genre that's born and reared inside New York. It becomes synonymous with places like the Bronx and Brooklyn and Queens. And it's a music culture that, at least through its first decade and a half, seems to be dependent upon a specific kind of environment, an urban environment with concrete jungles and tenements and graffiti-covered subways. 
So my book is a story about how that genre of hip-hop, which seems to be so inextricably tied to New York, how that genre really struggles in the 1980s to gain long-lasting industry success. It struggles to survive through the 1980s, in fact. Critics think that it's going to go the way of disco, that it'll just fade. And to everyone's surprise, and for some, to their utter horror, it is Los Angeles gangster rappers who figure out a way to secure for hip-hop a broad national commercial audience. Until this book, until my book, there really has not yet been a history of hip-hop, a deeply researched history of hip-hop, that explains how and why this happens as it does. And so my book, the focus of it, the aim of it, the goal of it, is to do that, is to explain that trajectory, why, why things happen as they do, and why that matters. So... To offer you a sample of this layered tale, I'd like to read a couple of passages from chapter two, which is entitled Hardcore LA, and stars some, from my point of view, unlikely characters, including Run DMC, who of course um, are a a rap trio from from Queens in New York. Uh, And by the way, to accompany the reading, I've created a short Spotify playlist with some of the artists referenced here in the chapter and some of the music from the year 1986, which of course is the year that this part of the story takes place. So I hope you enjoy. Chapter two, Hardcore LA. Please, on August 17th, 1986, Houdini's frontman Jaleel Hutchins stood on the Long Beach Arena stage, urging concert goers to settle down. The thousands of music fans in front of him were gathered for a sold-out hip-hop showcase, waiting to see the act at the top of the bill, Run DMC. As the reigning kings of rap made their way to the venue, and as the revelry devolved into commotion, Houdini strained to finish its set. Throughout the group's performance, arena security guards worked to contain scattered fistfights and shoving matches, but when one of these spilled onto the stage, the show stopped. Stagehands switched on the bright house lights, and Houdini's DJ, Grandmaster D, quieted the music, stalling the show to let Hutchins make his appeal. This is a place to party. This is a place to hear music. The abrupt break from the thunderous bass thumps of Houdini's I'm a Ho only focused more of the crowd's attention on the violence erupting around them. Extra light worsened things, emboldening some to rush their targets while others scrambled toward the exits. Outside, as security worked to clear the hall, the pandemonium spilled into the parking lot. Long Beach police squad cars swarmed in, an LAPD helicopter hovered above with its searchlight trained on the action, and officers in tactical gear made arrests. Billboard magazine later reported that, quote, an estimated 300 to 500 gang members had shown up for the Long Beach fracas. It left dozens arrested and 42 people injured, three critically. It brought the concert, one of the last on Run DMC's Raising Hell tour, to an abrupt end before the trio ever had a chance to take the stage. All efforts to prevent the melee from unfolding that night had failed. Arena officials, anticipating at least some gang presence, had hired dozens of extra staff, including off-duty Long Beach police, who led ticket holders through metal detectors and performed pat-downs, confiscating an assortment of guns, blades, and pipes. An arsenal which, in the possession of arena security, might have briefly reassured concert organizers 
but ultimately portended trouble. Once the throng outside had been efficiently funneled through entryways and checkpoints, guards and ushers left their posts in the lobby and moved inside to chaperone the sellout crowd. In the seating areas, the signs of mayhem came early. Rumors that hundreds of Los Angeles gang members were on site began swirling before the music started. As retired detectives working security spread word that some in the crowd had, quote, disguised their colors under jogging suits, crew members backstage placed calls to the Long Beach police requesting extra protection for the talent. But by then, fights were already breaking out among concertgoers, some dressed in red and others in blue, and spilling over to bystanders and uniformed security guards. In spite of the venue's security procedures at the ticket gates, some had managed to smuggle guns and knives to their seats. Others broke bottles, smashed metal folding chairs, or stripped fire extinguishers from walls to wield as weapons. The show began, but the scattered brawls made for a frustrating entertainment experience that became increasingly hazardous as the night progressed. Young rap fan Chris Baker said the scene made him, quote, scared for my life. By 10 p.m., warm-up band Timex Social Club had finished its set, and Houdini was trying to get through its songs. But police had already gathered outside, outfitted in riot gear. Chino, an L.A. blood who recognized rival bangers in the crowd immediately upon arrival, later told a reporter, I knew there was going to be trouble. There had to be. A teenager calling himself Mafia Dick explained that any concert that attracted youths from all over L.A.'s ganglands was bound to be a tinderbox. He said, we don't get along outside, so we're not gonna get along inside, and when you put all these groups together, you're looking for trouble. One detective who was present that night told Rolling Stone magazine that the violence was inevitable. He said, there are long held grudges between these gangs, and when they converge in one place, the paybacks will come. In a word, it was crazy, according to Run DMC's Jam Master Jay. As he and his fellow band members arrived at the venue, they witnessed what was happening inside, then watched from backstage as event organizers and security proved wholly incapable of preventing a mass exodus. It was like a stampede, Run DMC frontman Reverend Run Simmons recalled. Chairs coming up in the air, panicked kids in the crowd. He, like other witnesses that night, blamed gangs. They just took over, he said, citing hundreds of predatory kids roving through the buildings beating and robbing, he said. Describing what sounded like a scene from the apocalyptic, apocalyptic 1979 thriller, The Warriors, Jam Master Jay described a horde of people, quote, dressed the same with bandanas on their heads, roaming the floor, walking as one, chanting, screaming the names of their gangs. As events unfolded outside, Run DMC huddled backstage in a dressing room, joined by a few VIPs and stagehands, there, the young men broke apart a clothing rack to use the pieces as weapons, while a staff member's walkie-talkie broadcast ominous updates from somewhere out on the arena floor. We're losing it. We're losing it. Sponsored by an AM radio station in LA, K-Day, and promoted by the county's most prominent mobile DJ crews, the Long Beach Arena concert in August 1986 promised to be two things. First, it was touted as Run DMC's climactic show on the West Coast leg of Raising Hell, the group's first big tour. The 64-date multi-city tour represented a milestone for the trio from Hollis, Queens, 
and the group's final sellout show on the other coast in Southern California. It was to help certify its move from local success to national fame. Second, the Long Beach event had the potential to be a game changer for hip hop. Through the mid 1980s, rap music was synonymous with New York artists, with New York fans and New York venues. The East had incubated hip hop for nearly a decade and guarded its creation closely. Bill Adler, publicist for Russell Simmons' label Def Jam, later recalled the era and said, not only did New York dominate rap, but there was almost no one else involved. Bronx rapper Chris Kid Reed put it even more strongly when he said, any other place didn't even exist. But music industry insiders predicted that the regional insularity of early New York hip hop would spell its early demise. Run DMC defied that expectation. The Raising Hell tour included a string of California gigs culminating with the Long Beach Showcase. If it succeeded, that would do a lot to prove hip hop's appeal to a broad consumer market. A sold out Long Beach Arena rap concert would constitute an answer to the critics trying to dismiss this music movement as ephemeral, and it could pave the way to its future. Run DMC took their act to California, hoping on some level to usher in a new era of hip hop, to break the music free from its East Coast shell, and to let it evolve as both an art form and as a pop phenomenon. The 1986 Long Beach Arena concert helped all of that happen, but not in the way anyone anticipated. The Los Angeles Times called it the rap riot, showing a headline writer's preference for short words but also coining a label that neatly yoked hip-hop culture to unrest. Both Southern California and Run DMC were immediately pulled into ongoing national debates about the connections between youth music and social disorder. The lurid news of a rap riot played into an established narrative about riotous behavior being set off by rock concerts. The early 1980s had seen plenty of reporting by entertainment trade publications, popular music magazines, and newspaper lifestyle sections about, quote, hardcore music subcultures and the antisocial behavior they encouraged. Just as rhythm and blues music in the 1950s and rock and roll in the 1960s had caused their own cultural panics. In that context, the Run DMC concert looked to some like more evidence of the causal links between music and society's ills. Music journalist Frank Owen later called it, quote, perhaps the worst rock and roll riot in history but at the time, it also looked like part of a pattern. Southern California, particularly LA County and Orange County, was in fact the epicenter for the worst of the 80s, quote, rock riots. Early in the decade, violence had become the hallmark of punk rock performances throughout the region, not only in Long Beach, but also in Newport Beach, Costa Mesa, Santa Ana, Huntington Beach, Fullerton, and Los Angeles. Police officials and city leaders railed against events featuring punk music because it was a youth trend that, as the Santa Ana police chief argued, was, quote, conducive to violence. News of bloody clashes, drug use, and other hardcore punk behavior inside rock music clubs and concert halls fueled the public's fears. In 1983, Billboard quipped, quote, just when you thought it was safe to go to a punk rock show in Los Angeles. Along comes another punk riot to fan the flames of controversy. The Los Angeles Times reported that, quote, 
a recent concert featuring skin slashing, furniture smashing, and window breaking was not unusual for punk rock. No wonder punk rock shows in Los Angeles featuring provocatively named groups such as Suicidal Tendencies, The Vandals, Social Distortion, Lost Cause, Verbal Abuse, Black Flag, and Aggression invited police attention. City leaders, including those in Long Beach, worked closely with law enforcement to put, to put punk-friendly venues on notice, using existing fire safety codes, occupancy limits, and rules about loitering to tamp down the thriving scene. The tactics tended to work primarily by spooking insurance companies, which frequently denied punk venues and event promoters access to liability insurance, a critical buffer against the financial losses resulting from property damage or personal injury lawsuits. Rather than pass legislation barring punk rock concerts altogether, a move likely to be found unconstitutional, city leaders worked with existing laws in an attempt to, as one council member put it, quote, accomplish what we want. Public campaigns to police radical youth music scenes in the 1980s were not exclusive to Southern California, and nor was punk music the sole target. In fact, by the middle of the decade, heavy metal had become the bigger boogeyman for the anti-obscenity activists across the country, reigniting the culture wars of decades past. On the national stage in 1985, then-Senator Al Gore's wife, Tipper Gore, co-founded the Parents Music Resource Center with three other D.C.-based women. The group sought commitments from U.S. record companies to place warning labels on albums with violent, sexually explicit, or otherwise morally abhorrent content. This and other forms of pressure, in what has been called a time of, quote, satanic panic, were mainly targeted at heavy metal artists, including Judas Priest, and Black Sabbath's former frontman, Ozzy Osbourne. But in Southern California, where punk bands flourished, moral crusaders targeted metal and punk with equal fervor. City leaders, local parent groups, school administrators, police, and youth counselors deemed heavy metal and punk rock to be essentially the same, despite the musical and philosophical differences their fans saw in them. In the eyes of concerned citizens, both punk and metal artists modeled dangerous and addictive behavior for their young, middle-class, white fans. Kids in the suburbs of LA and Orange Counties abused drugs and alcohol, disrespected authority, and engaged in violent, self-destructive acts, and supposedly musicians were to blame. At Spikes and Studs, a one-day conference held at an Anaheim hotel in February of 1985, 130 people gathered to learn about, quote, heavy metal and punk and their influence on children. Family counselors from the Back and Control Training Center warned about the associations between this, quote, extreme music and high levels of anger, violence, Satanism, and damage to both property and animals. Long before the rap riot in Long Beach, quote, punkers and meddlers were those most associated with event violence in the region so much so that Southern California venue managers, promoters, police, and performers braced for it. In June of 1986, just two months prior to the Run DMC show, police had responded to another flood of emergency calls about a sold-out event at the Long Beach Arena, this time a heavy metal concert featuring Ozzy Osbourne and Metallica. There, the Long Beach police made dozens of arrests, mostly for drug possession and assault, 
after four concertgoers either jumped or fell from a balcony into the crowd below, one of them to his death. In an interview following the incident, the convention center's general manager said that it was, quote, not unusual for an arena event of such size to devolve into chaos. Organizers of Run DMC's Raising Hell Tour may have been too nonchalant about problems at shows prior to the one in Long Beach, along with the police in various locales who monitored the summer's event. In Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Detroit, and Atlanta, law enforcement agencies reported no more than, quote, some bizarre conduct following Run DMC's appearances. In New York, police did make two dozen arrests outside Madison Square Garden, but the group's tour promoter, Jeff Sharp, explained the trouble as inconsequential. He said, when you have a sold-out show at Madison Square Garden and only 24 arrests, that's not a problem. That's reality. NYPD officials agreed, noting that at such events, police always, quote, anticipated a little misbehavior. In Atlanta, a gunman fired into the crowd during a July show at the Omni Coliseum, wounding an 18-year-old fan. But Atlanta police downplayed the shooting as a fluke, underscoring that no one had been seriously injured and that the lone suspect had been charged. Violence in the streets of Pittsburgh after the Civic Arena show prompted the city's public safety director to issue, by then, a familiar warning about, quote, provocative and pornographic songs poisoning the culture. But in spite of the occasional trouble inside and outside its concerts, Run DMC's 64-date tour rumbled along with the group and its handlers largely unperturbed. Of course the tour had been prepared for some trouble, as Def Jam publicist Bill Adler would later recall. Most of rap music's millions of fans are teenagers, and there's always the possibility of unruliness when thousands of teenagers get together. Russell Simmons, the group's manager, summed up the occasional unruliness this way. He said, it was no problem. The Run DMC show in Long Beach in the summer of 1986 reminded city officials and anti-obscenity crusaders that popular culture could push bad people to do bad things. Reacting to the concert violence in Long Beach, Tipper Gore chalked it up to, quote, angry, disillusioned, unloved kids united behind heavy metal or rap music, and the music says it's okay to beat people up. Or, as observers on the other side of the debate noted, Concert violence in 1986, predictably, drummed up hysteria around the arts, which served to distract the public from other pressing social and economic crises. According to Melody Maker, 1986 marked, quote, the year that Run DMC joined AIDS, crack, and Colonel Gaddafi as yet another media-generated threat, a bogus disturbance designed to outrage all right-minded people and enhance the legitimacy and cohesion of a rapidly crumbling social structure. End quote. Still, rap music by 1986 had become far more than simply a proxy for other whiter youth cultures that provoked public anxiety and spurred cultural conservatives to take action. In the aftermath of the Long Beach Melee, as Billboard called it, debates about youth music trends began to center on the topic of race. As the story of the disastrous Run DMC concert riveted the popular press and intersected with news of LA's ungovernable juvenile gang problem, the narrative shifted from tabloid style commentary about the quote, bizarre conduct of headbangers and knuckleheads, and instead turned to breathless reporting on LA's quote, ghetto toughs. 
in the music press in particular, the consensus was that the 1986 Long Beach show exemplified the, quote, rap violence that appeared to be a product of hip-hop's gang war. And in this context, it was fair to cast L.A.'s rap fans, supposedly, as, quote, gangsters. Dog whistle terms like these reframed what was for the 1980s otherwise run-of-the-mill concert violence that struck indiscriminately in terms of genre and race. And they suggested that the Long Beach rap riot would have more ominous implications for hip-hop, for Run DMC, and for Los Angeles. There's much, much more to this story, <laughs> um, and I hope I've inspired you to read more. To Live and Defy in L.A., How Gangster Rap Changed America is out now. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.